You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, and unafraid witness. Thank you for listening. Father, consistently we're in awe of who you are. There truly is no greater name on this whole universe to proclaim than yours, O God. There is truly no reason to, get, to, to rejoice other than the name of Jesus Christ. God, you are the greatest uh, person in the universe. You've given us your greatest gift in Jesus Christ. And so, God, it's with joy that we come before you this morning. We don't have to be here today, God. We come to you with joy to worship and express our heart's gratitude for who you are and what you've done for us on the cross. Thank you, Father, that we find eternal joy in the presence of Jesus. That's the only place. God, I thank you for the joy of knowing today for the believers that are here that we are forgiven of every sin, past, present, and future. We're forgiven, God, and we no longer have to carry guilt and shame with us, not because we are good, but because of Jesus who came to die in our place and be raised to life that we also might be raised to new life in Jesus Christ. It's with joy, God, that we worship you because of our forgiveness. It's with joy, Father, that we come because we've been adopted into a family of believers that's a relationship so much deeper than even our physical families because we're tied together by the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for our church family today, God. Thank you for the joy that we have in coming together. Thank you, Lord, for the joy of opening up your word. Every other religion serves a dead God, but we serve a living God who speaks to us in an ongoing way through the word of God and through the spirit of God. Thank you, God, for the joy of opening up your word today and seeing clearly your uh, presence and seeing clearly how you work within your people. God, our prayer today is that we would uh, come here and we truly encounter you, that we would come and and not just put a little check mark in a box that we came to church, uh, not just give a token nod, but instead, oh God, our our prayer is that we come and we hear from you today in a way that would change the trajectory of our week and our year and our lives. God, there's no greater joy than hearing your voice speak to us through the word of God and through the Holy Spirit. Now, God, I pray you'd open up every single ear and every single heart in this place to hear. Not a message from a guy. I'm just a guy. I can't deliver this in a way that's gonna change a life. But God, that we'd hear this as as from you and you alone. That we'd leave here truly doing what we've just finished singing about, that we'd be exalting one name and one name alone, the name of Jesus Christ. Help us, God, be near us, be with us. We pray these things in your name, in your name alone, amen. Amen, I invite you to take a seat and turn with me in your Bibles, turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 25. If you don't have a Bible with you, please put your hand up. As you know, every week we're more than delighted to get God's word out, and so if you don't have a Bible, put your hand up, and an usher will be happy to give you a Bible. If you don't have one at home, please take it home with you and read it. If you have one at home, please leave it here for somebody else who doesn't have one that we can give it to. Uh, Acts chapter uh, 25 is where we are. Please follow along. Uh, Acts uh, 25 and 26. Super creative title this morning. It's simply On Trial Part 2. Creative juices were flowing this week. And uh, I know you guys don't remember titles anyway, so it doesn't matter, right? And so On Trial Part 2, we're just going to jump right back into Paul's courtroom drama this morning in the book of Acts. And, and it's like a made-for-TV special, except that this is real-life stuff with big-time eternal uh, ramifications. 
If you remember from last week, we left off that Paul is on trial for his faith and his belief, and he resurrected Jesus. And there's false accusations flying everywhere. The religious leaders and the politicians, they're trying to like stop this Jesus stuff. It's messing up their own little kingdoms and empires. And so Paul is on trial in a hostile environment. But in the midst of the chaos, as we learn next week, God continues to affirm his presence upon Paul and he continues to advance the gospel and he continues to grow the church, just showing the power of the God that we serve. And we see even last week and then this week, and even in this hostile environment, get this, Paul remains true to God's calling in his life. Even in the midst of a hostile, negative environment, Paul remains true to God's calling in his life and shows us what it is to stand for God in a world that is diabolically opposed to God. And so if you're coming in here thinking this is a story about some guy like a couple thousand years ago has no relation to my life, like think again. Because this hostile courtroom environment we see Paul in, we actually walk out of here every single week into a hostile environment to the things of God, don't we? A nation now where everything goes and everything's good except for God and his word. And so as I study this, I realize that, man, man, we're living this out every day. Paul, Paul has a little, little scene here, but we're living this out every day. How, ever wonder to yourself, how do I live in an environment for Christ, truly passionate for Christ, when everything and everybody around me seems the exact opposite of what I'm supposed to stand for? Ever wondered that? It's difficult, isn't it? Paul teaches us what it's like, and, and I get it. Not, not everybody is against God. I think there's four types of people in our world today. We're in the post-Christian culture. You agree with me, right? We're in a post-Christian culture where Christianity is not the norm, and, and there's some people that are oblivious to the reality of God in his word. They, honestly, in Canada today, some people grow up, they don't even know about God. And my, my, my kids go to school with kids who have never heard of God or Jesus or his word, and so not everyone's, a, not everyone's against God. Some of them, they have no clue, which evermore makes us want to take this message series and acts to heart and share the good news of Jesus. There's some that are uh, ambivalent towards God. In other words, they've heard of Jesus, but they're kind of like here nor there. They've got all kinds of mixed ideas about Jesus, not 100% opposed, just kind of ambivalent. And, and you believe what you want to believe, but just leave me alone to, to believe what I want to believe. Many people in those two categories, but then we get to the next category. There's many people who are resistant to God. Maybe not actively opposing God, but everything's good until you drop the name Jesus. It's not a drop the mic moment, it's a like slap the mic out of your hand moment. Talking about anything but Jesus, and you start getting a little bit of like, wow, this is a little bit difficult to share our faith, and there's many people in the world like that. Talk sports, talk weather, talk anything, but don't talk Jesus, and maybe not overtly hostile, but inwardly hostile. And then there's many in our culture today that are antagonistic, the last one, antagonistic to the things of God, like outright, not just outright not wanting to hear about God, but outright, outright trying to shut people up that do talk about God. And every day we come across every one of those people, groups of people in our lives. And how do we live in a culture that's hostile to the things of God? Some of you are even going home for this place to a family situation that's, that you're walking into hostility. And some of you are going to a workplace this week, there's going to be hostility. How do we live in this, in this context? Well, we want to study uh, this 
these two chapters this morning, not to take part in this like a roving reporter that somehow wants to get their own spin on things for tomorrow's headlines. We want to watch intently as Paul goes through this trial, through this hostile situation, that we might also be able to live our calling in such a way that glorifies God and through that brings fulfillment to the Great Commission. And so on trial part two, here we go. Uh, Number one, you can write in your notes, is this. To stand for God in a hostile world. That's what we're learning today. How do you stand for God in a hostile world? To stand for God in a hostile world, number one, demands that I have strong convictions. Stand for God in a hostile world demands that I have strong convictions. That's really the summary of chapter 25. Again, we're going through two chapters today. I'm going to summarize for you chapter 25, and we're going to look a little more in-depth into chapter 26. But this is a summary of chapter 25. Remember, we left off Paul last week. Where was Paul last week? He's with Felix, and Felix is like, he doesn't know what to do with this guy, so he, he, he can't, he can't he's, he's innocent for sure, so if you convict him, that, that's just not right. If you let him go, the Jews are going to convict Felix, so he just throws him in jail. And he, that's where Paul sits for two years. We think we have a bad justice system. Two years he's in jail, and it's, it's not like our, our jails where it's like, you know, um, three square meals in a fitness room and an advanced degree. That's not the jails they were talking about. This is, this is hard time, and so, and so it's now two years removed from when God said to him, I'm going to be with you, and you're going to get to Rome. So you can imagine the, the doubts and the fears that creep through Paul's mind. Two years ago, all that happened. And so the only thing that got him out, we see here in the beginning of chapter 25, is, is, is Felix left Paul in prison, then he gets replaced by Festus. So his term is over, and Festus, the new, these sound like cat names, don't they? Felix and Festus? Like, who names their kids those things? If you're looking for a biblical name, don't choose Festus. That's just weird. So Festus comes in, and he's, first thing these Jewish guys do is, remember the guys that said, like, I'm not going to eat or drink until Paul's dead. Remember that? They didn't stick to their vow for sure. Two years later, they're still alive. They're either really, really skinny now. Or they're like, man, that was a dumb idea to take an oath before God. I'm going to do something stupid. And so these guys are still gunning for him. And so they're like, they're like hey, hey, new guy coming in. Like, why don't we try and convince him the same thing? They're still on this, this kill bill for Paul. So why don't you bring down Paul to Jerusalem? And we'll try him there, wink, wink, kill him, and, and ambush him. And, and Festus is like, no, no, it's good, guys. Like, I'll take care of this. And so um, Festus wanted to hear this case himself. And so here's God again being faithful to the promise to stand by Paul, just by putting favor in Festus's heart. And so the court's in session. So instead of bringing Paul to these guys and these Jewish men, they, they all come to Festus. They kind of circle him like in the schoolyard. Like, yeah, you look at that guy. You know what that Accusing him of all kinds of false things. And so verse um, 8, we see here Paul responding. And remember in the chapter before, Paul was more... Um, not arguing, but reasoning. Remember that word, he reasoned. He's, he's having an intellectual dialogue with Felix and trying to help him understand. Well, Paul goes from reasoning with Felix to arguing with Festus. And sometimes it's okay as Christians to get a little amplified about things that are right. He's arguing with Festus in his defense. And he's basically saying, like, I didn't do any of the things that they've said I'm doing. And And if I'm guilty, then sentence me right now. And if I'm not, I want to go to Caesar. I want to go to the emperor. Like, take me to the higher court. Festus is trying to convince Paul to go to Jerusalem. You know what Paul realized? Hey, if I go to Jerusalem, I may as well sign my own death certificate right here. 
I have a more of a shot of a fair trial in Rome, in Rome as a Roman. And so he appeals to a higher court. And in the process of this, look at the verse 12. Festus says, okay, then to Caesar you've appealed. To Caesar you'll go. But before he gets to Caesar, Agrippa and Bernice come. And these are like the, the um, emperor. And so they come. The king, I saw the king, the king comes, and, and this is the son of Agrippa I. Remember Agrippa I, who, who imprisoned, uh, killed James and imprisoned Peter? This is the same, this is the son of that guy, and, and he comes with Bernice. Bernice is not his wife. You just have to, this shows you the character of the guy. Bernice is not his wife. It's his beautiful sister, whom he knew a little too well, according to church history. Gross. This is the mindset of this guy who's like nothing near God, antagonistic to the things of God and and hateful to the things of God. This is who now Paul's going to stand before. And so they come at the end of this with all their pomp. And verse 19, here's what the charge is. Verse 19. This is how Festus summarizes it to Agrippa 2. Here's what it all boils down to. The accuser stood by. They brought no charge in his case of such evils as I suppose. Like there's nothing to their case. Rather, here's the main deal. They're upset about their own religion and have uh, about a certain Jesus. He has disdain for Jesus, but a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. So this whole thing is not even about Paul. It's about the reality of Jesus being alive. And so at the end of this chapter... Uh, basically, uh, he's going to stand to defend himself before Agrippa. But in chapter 25, before we move to chapter 26, because we, again, I want to remind you every week, there's, there's something in every chapter for us to learn. Every word that God has recorded is on purpose, amen? And so sometimes we skip by these things. We're like, oh, that's a cool story. That's an interesting piece of factual history. Don't miss that part, factual history. But there's stuff to learn in this. And here's what I think we learned, first of all. I think we learned this, that if if we're going to stand for God in a hostile world, it's going to demand that I have strong convictions. Look look at the personality of Paul in this. He is, you can write this in your notes, he's persistent in standing for truth. He is persistent in standing for truth. Now, again, I I try and put myself in the place of these guys I'm studying them because I just want to know about them. I kind of want to try and sense what they felt and and maybe try and get in their their heads what they're thinking and and put yourself in the place of Paul at this point. He's been through a lot already. Remember, he's been beaten up and thrown outside the city. He's been chased out of towns only to have them fall into the next town. Like, like he's been stoned. He's been been whipped. He's been ridiculed. He's been falsely accused. Now he's just been in jail for two years. Don't you think there's something in his brain right now that might be kicking in going like, I think I should just give up this fight. Like We don't even read about other believers coming and visiting him in jail. We don't know what happened. We, we don't see any other people contending for the faith. And, and, and I, think, I think at this point, doubts are, remember two years since God affirmed to him that I'm going to do this? Like, God affirmed something to me and like three weeks later, I'm like, well, where is he? Why did he do it? Like, fast food, where is it? And yet notice Paul, though. Paul must feel something like, this is a hard life. This isn't what I am pictured following Jesus to be. I think it'd be easy for Paul to throw in the towel right now and head the other direction or just say, whatever I need to say to appease this next emperor, I'm just gonna appease him and get out so I can continue on with the mission. But, but, but instead, look what he does. He stands for himself. I don't think he's just standing for himself to like prove myself right. I think, I think he realized that disprove his credibility and he loses the, the gospel audience. I think there's something different here. So, so, but Paul's persistent in standing for the truth. 
I don't even think it's a case of stubbornness. Paul's a stubborn guy. I don't think it's a case of stubbornness. I think this is a a God-ordained, spirit-driven, inner fortitude to stand for what's right and defend the truth. Because I think in the long run, it's not even about Paul. It's about about this, this claim in verse 19. It's about, man, if I just stop talking and cave then who's going to carry on this message of a resurrected Jesus that the people so desperately need to hear? So I think the lesson for us in this is, as we see Paul, is man, his mission and his mandate, he's going until death. And nothing's going to stop him. Here's, here's a good lesson I think we learn. I think today in our culture, it's easy to take the path of let's not rock the boat. Let's, let's be silent on things that, that aren't going to offend anyone else and and yet somewhere within the heart that God's put in us that beats for him, there's got to be a desire to like stand for truth and truth no matter what. It seems in our culture today that, that the only bad Christian is the, the outspoken Christian and the only good Christian is a silent Christian. Well, here's in the Bible what I'm reading in Acts. Like silent Christian is oxymoron. Like there's just, there's just no such thing as a silent Christian. And sometimes as Christians, like well, Paul, Paul is truly rocking the boat. I'm not a... A natural laid-back guy, as you probably figured out by now. But I'm also not a natural, like, let's just go rock the boat for the sake of rocking the boat, guys. You also probably figured out by now. But sometimes as Christians, there's a time and a place to, like, stand up in the boat for what's right. So, so this is what Paul is doing right here. He's standing up in the boat and, and defending not only his honor, but the honor of God. And, and the, I think the danger in saying some of these things from Paul is people are afraid, pastors are afraid that everyone's going to run out of here and try and make a name for themselves by being an activist. And that's not what I'm advocating for. We're not, we're not Westboro Baptist Church. I think what the scriptures say is that if we truly love God, if we truly believe that Jesus is alive, then, then somewhere within our lives as we walk with Christ in a hostile world is going to be an inkling to stand up for Christ and what is right. Sometimes the only wrong thing is to stay quiet. Look at, look at what our culture is dealing with now. Our culture really has relegated Jesus Christ to a myth or an outdated historical figure at best. Our culture has labeled the Bible now hate literature. And the response of us as believers in Canada is maybe different than the United States, but in Canada is like just sit back and let it all happen. Instead of telling, let me ask you, let me ask you this, instead of telling you what I think, let me ask you this. Do you think that that would be God's plan for his church in this time? And for your life in this time, as we, as we watch euthanasia take oh, the first eight months in Canada, like 1,300 lives. As you watch sexuality be redefined and marriage be, be put off to the side as, as, you know where our culture is going, as schools increasingly become less about Jesus and more about everything else. Franklin Graham says this, now more than ever we need believers to have the courage to take, take a stand for Jesus and his word. It, it, it is biblical. It's not just Franklin Graham that says it. Think, think about Psalm 78, 6. It says to us that we're supposed to pass on Christ and his word to the coming generations. How can we do that being silent? 
Judges 2, 10, and 11 show us that there's a generation who grew up because of the silence of the, the nation who didn't know God or his work, and they completely did evil in his sight. I think we learn from Paul that there's a time to be persistent in standing for truth. There's a time to keep our mouths closed. There's a time to open them. And maybe now more than ever, it's a time to open them in the right way, in the right context, with the heart of God for sure. We're getting to that in a bit. But I ask myself, where are the Pauls in the world today? Where are the Pauls in Canada today? How come I'm so prone to not be a Paul? And you read stories in the Bible like uh, David and his 30 mighty men at the end of 2 Samuel, and you, you look at these 30 mighty men, you're like, man, if God would only raise up 30 mighty men, think of how maybe uh, the, 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 the region here in our country could be shaped for the glory of God. And here's what one of the 30 mighty men, Shema, did in, in the midst of his conflict with the Philistines. They were fighting over this little plot of land, and all the Israelites ran away. But, but it says here in, in 2 Samuel 23, verse 11, and next to Eleazar, another one of David's mighty men, was Shema, the son of Aggie, the Herorites. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi where there was a plot of ground full of lentils that were fighting over crop. And the men fled from the Philistines, but he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines. And the Lord worked a great victory that day. I could do a whole sermon on this, but that would defeat the point of going through chapters 25 and 26. And so I leave you with this thought. To really stand for Christ in a hostile world, we, we need to have strong convictions. We need to be persistent in standing for the truth. We need to be asking God to give us a holy persistence and a holy boldness to stand for the truth. I think here's another strong conviction that we ought to have if we're going to stand for God in a, in a hostile world. We need to be persuaded of a resurrected Jesus. It, it's right in the text. So again, I'm not trying to make things up here, give you this pastor's thoughts. My thoughts are... Dull at best. I'm going with the loftiest thoughts in the word of God today. But he needs to be persuaded of a resurrected Jesus. And so, and so all this comes down to this for Paul. It's not even like, man, I gotta be innocent so I don't have a record leaving here. You know, I, I need, it's, it's, if I back down, that's gonna speak volumes about the God that I say I believe in and I believe that God is real and God is alive and God is still working today. And I believe the underlying reality of this whole inner drive of Paul is simply this. He couldn't get away from the fact that Jesus Christ is alive and the world needs to know. Verse 19, this is the whole argument is about. I read it already. It's Jesus who was dead, but Paul's like, no, no, he's alive. What's at stake in Paul's life, what's at stake in our lives is not even our reputations that matters most. It's the reality of a living God that we serve in other people's minds and hearts. Do you realize this is a fundamental tenet of the Christian faith? You cannot be a Christian and believe that Jesus Christ is dead. We celebrate this every Easter but the reality that is sent the central component of our faith is, is this, is the resurrected Christ drives our lives daily. It propels our love and our life on mission. You miss this, we miss it all. 1 Corinthians 15 says this so clearly. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Jesus isn't just a moral teacher. He's the one that died for our sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. 
If in Christ we have hope, in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Like we're the pitiable of the pitied. But in fact, it says in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ has been raised from the dead. And John 14, 6 tells us he's been raised from the dead, but he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by a living Jesus Christ. Only Jesus can give us life. Only Jesus can resurrect our lives spiritually from the dead. Only Jesus can resurrect our lives physically from the dead. Only Jesus can solve the sin issue that plagues your heart and my heart, and only Jesus can remove the pain and gain the victory over the grave. I think what really is the driving factor behind Paul's reality here is that he cannot sit back and watch uh, people show disdain or devalue his God more than anything else. This certain Jesus. I'll tell you the certain Jesus is. He's my God. To live for Jesus in our world is going to demand strong convictions just like Paul. The Bible does not teach us, I want to remind you, the Bible does not teach us that all religions are equal. Those little coexist stickers you see on bumpers, like like I get what that's trying to say. It's, yeah, we coexist, we live in peace with with everyone around us, but but it almost gives the impression that everything's equal. There's all kinds of paths to God. There is only one path to God, it's through the resurrected Jesus Christ. And we can't compromise our beliefs in a risen Savior. We can't stay quiet about our beliefs in a risen Savior. It'd be like me going out for supper with my wife and and, and sitting at another table with her every time and not wanting to associate with her. How can we do that? This resurrected Jesus reality, it's what sets us apart from all other religions. They, They serve a dead God. Ours is alive. And we we can't idly sit by as people diss or dismiss Jesus. He's too real to us. I pray he is. He he means too much to us. He pursued us. He died for us. He lives within us. We can't let others dismiss him or take him out of the equation. Amen? If we love Jesus with all of our hearts, we will also have the same convictions as Paul, and we can't just sit and say nothing at the expense of Jesus' reputation. How do you know if we really believe that Jesus is alive? Like intellectually we can believe it, but how do we really know if we really embody and live out this whole like resurrected Jesus thing? I think it comes down to whether we're willing to, 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 to speak when, when, when conversations with Jesus come up. I think it comes down to the, this, this inner reality of like I am so convinced that Jesus Christ is alive that I can't live any other way than what the Bible tells me, than what Acts sets out for me. Honestly, I wonder if that's why a lot of people really don't share their faith because deep down they really don't believe in Jesus. Hoping for one day maybe I'm gonna have heaven instead of hell. Hoping for a better life here like Jesus is some kind of cosmic do good for me that's gonna help me with a better life. But deep down I really don't believe that Jesus Christ is the resurrected Lord because if we do and when we do, we're gonna have deep convictions like Paul and we won't be able to keep our lips closed when the rubber meets the road. It's a good challenge for us, a good encouragement for us. Chapter 25 is packed. But look what happens next in chapter 26. 
Strong convictions are a part of the standing for Christ in a hostile world, but, but, but it also requires us not just having a persistence to stand for truth, not just being persuaded of a resurrected Jesus. And if you're not persuaded, start praying now, God, help me be persuaded that Jesus Christ is real. Get your Bible open. Stop. Start praying your heart out. Surround yourself with other believers. If Jesus is real, I need to know for real that my life will be changed. Give me the same conviction as Paul, Jesus. been praying that all week from my own heart. Here's a second truth, one point for each, each chapter, just to make it easy for you this morning. To stand for God in a hostile world, chapter 26, requires me to contend for the gospel. To stand for God in a hostile world requires me to contend for the gospel. I think sometimes it's easy for us to grab a hold of different things that we want to contend for. And yeah, I'm going to be the anti-abortion person or I'm going to be the, the, the this person or I'm going to be the that person. But here's what we also need to contend for more than anything else, more than any social issue today. We need to contend for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Agrippa gives Paul the microphone yet again. Notice, notice, notice this, every step of the way. It's, it's hard for Paul, hey? It's not easy, but every step of the way. Notice what happens. Somehow Paul gets the microphone to just speak. The harder it gets, get this, the harder it gets for Paul, the more opportunity he has to, put, to testify of Jesus Christ in greater venues. And so instead of backing away from the hard, be faithful in the hard and see what God does. So now Paul's at a higher court now before the king, moving up the ladder before the king, and basically chapter 26, quick summer before I get reading it for you, Paul does what he's done a few times in, in this book of Acts. We saw Paul's conversion in, in, in Acts 9, right, in that whole story of testimony. And then he tells his testimony a couple times after that. And so Paul's again telling his testimony. And so we've covered this from the angle of like, here's the reality of what a gospel testimony is. This is what God does in every heart that he, that he changes. There's walking in my sin. Remember Acts and I, walking in my sin, encounter with Jesus in some way, maybe not through a bright light like it's shining down on me right now. But I encounter Jesus and then I get up and my life's never been the same. That's kind of, kind of covered that. Then we covered the next part of his testimony, a couple of how to share your testimony. And, and God doesn't put the testimonies in here a couple times, just for good measure, like this is clearly a defining moment in the church and in Paul's life. And so we get to this testimony again. It's, you also notice that if you compare all the testimonies, they're all a little bit different. It doesn't mean that, it doesn't mean that there's contradictions. It means that they tell the whole story. And uh, notice this too, that this is the longest and most eloquent of Paul's testimonies. I think he's getting better at sharing his testimony. I think the more he does it, the more confident he's getting and the more God's using, again, a good confirmation for you. I don't know where to start. Just start sharing, and then God will do the same in you. But So we're going to take this from a different angle this morning. We're just going to see the, the, the model that he gives us and the heart behind why he's doing what he's doing and contending for the faith. So Paul's contending for the gospel. He's giving a defense of not really himself. If you study this, he's not really talking about himself a lot. All he's doing is giving a, a, a testimony to the reality of God in front of all these people who are antagonistic and angry and, and about to end his life. He gets up and look what he says here. So Agrippa says to Paul in chapter 26, you have permission to speak for yourself. Paul never shy. He knows God's already promised he's going to be with him. So Paul stretches out his hand. He's so, he's so, I wish I had the boldness of Paul, don't you? Silence. And he made his defense. 
Again, you gotta notice his defense, though. It's, it's, it's not a, I didn't do it, I didn't do it, I didn't do it. He's, he's making a defense of Jesus Christ. I consider myself fortunate. Who would say that in this context? I consider myself fortunate to be here, really. Like, I wouldn't consider you fortunate at all, Paul. Because God's being faithful to his promise, and I'm still preaching, and, and a bigger audience, and... I'm fortunate to be before you, King Agrippa. Uh, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. So I'm going to give you the goods. Look, look what it says here next. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. To stand for God in a hostile world. I think we've been over what that entails and what it looks like. But here's the heart behind it. Look at this. I beg you to listen to me. I, I think to contend for Jesus. Here's the model to contend for Jesus. You can write these little subpoints in your notes. Here's how we contend for Jesus. Number one, through earnest passion. <laughs> through earnest passion. We know what to say. We, we know the gospel. Hopefully you guys know the gospel. Let me say it again just to make sure you know. I'm amazed at how many times you have conversations throughout the week and you've covered something over and over and over and you ask someone a question like, I don't know. Okay, let me go over it again just to make sure you know. Here's the gospel. We are sinners. Separated from a holy God. That, that, that gap is so big we can't get there on our own by doing good. God has to save us and Jesus Christ bridged that gap. He lived the life we couldn't live. We couldn't be perfectly obedient and he died the death we should have died that somehow we can have reconciliation with God not on our merits but on his. So we know that. We know what to say. We know how to share our testimony. Well, here's what God's done in my life but sometimes I think we miss the heart behind it all and the heart behind it all starts with a passion, an earnest passion for Lost souls. Look, look at what he's doing here. Paul is not telling them. You know what he's doing? He's begging them. He's imploring with them. He's pleading with them with energy. He, he's like, please, if anything you listen to, like, set your emotions aside. Just listen because this is crucial for you. This is life-changing for you. This is life-giving for you. Just listen to me, I beg of you. Someone once said when we share our faith, it should be like, like one, be one beggar sharing it with another beggar where to find food. I'm starving like you are, but I found the mother load, and please come and share it with me. Beg is in plead with someone that their life depended upon it, and, and I think this is what's lost in our culture is we share our faith. I think we know what to say. I think we have all the, we've been trained so well, all the seminars and all the YouTube videos, we've been trained so well, some of us, but, but the heart behind is what's missing. I, I wonder if many people don't take seriously our call to salvation because they, they look at us with a lackluster energy and the lack of passion in our hearts. Like, well, if that's all there is to that, then there must not be true. I love how Paul's begging them. As most of you know, we have a special needs daughter and she goes through these bouts where she just, she doesn't eat for whatever reason. She's super, super tiny and skinny and in those bouts, we try everything to get her to eat. Just went through one a couple months ago and it, almost comes down to this, please eat. Just eat. Like, if you don't eat, you gotta go to the doctor. If you go to the doctor, then, you know, just please eat. Your life depends upon you eating, and we pray at night, help our daughter eat, because if she doesn't eat, it's not going anywhere. When was the last time you shared the gospel with that same urgency? I thought of that this week. When was the last time I, I pleaded with someone, the same way I plead for my daughter to eat? I plead with, with people who don't know Jesus, please just, just take and eat the meal. 
Paul is begging them to listen to him patiently. When was the last time you begged someone to listen as if their future and their life depended upon it? Because it does. When was the last time you begged somebody to give ear to the greatest story you could ever tell, to present to them the greatest person, the greatest gift, and the greatest opportunity that could ever be presented to them? When, when was the last time you shared your faith with that heart because you so desperately just want people to know the abundant life that you found in Jesus Christ? I've shared with you this before, but I'll share it again because it just seems so applicable here as I think of Paul begging them to, to listen. The story of Billy Graham doing one of his crusades over in England a few years ago, a number of years ago, a long time ago now. And coming out of church, and he went and saw the, a guy sitting on a bench and sat beside him and, and started to share his faith. And the guy said, stop, 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 stop. I've heard this before, but stop, 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 stop. I know what you're going to say, but I don't believe it. He said, well, why don't you believe it? Like, like, talk with me. Like, getting back to the reasoning thing. Talk with me. Share with me. He's like, because, you know, I, I sit on this bench every Sunday uh, as people are coming out of church, and, and I've concluded that if your message was true, and if there truly was a God, and there truly was Jesus Christ, there truly was heaven and hell, everybody in that church would be bumbling over each other to get here and tell me about it. And every week they walk out, they walk out, and they walk right by me. So I'm concluding that there's some, some kind of disconnect, and it must not be true. Brothers and sisters, if we're going to spend ourselves for Jesus, we need to learn to speak persuasively about Jesus and with an earnest passion. Don't, don't hold your passion for your sports team. Don't, don't hold your passion for your family. Those are good things to put passion towards, but, but hold your greatest passion for Jesus Christ and talking about Jesus Christ to those who need him. Second sub-point to this, we'll keep going. I beg you to listen. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. It goes on in verse 6. I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by the God to our fathers. He's putting an emphasis on hope as we live in a hostile world. Here's how we can persuasively convince somebody, I pray, through the power of the Holy Spirit. We can't make anyone saved, but through the power of the Holy Spirit is, is to have an earnest passion, put an emphasis on hope. Here's what Paul's doing. I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers. And so he's, he's like, you're Jews. You get it. Our 12 tribes hope to attain. Like you're, you're earnestly worshiping day and night, hoping for what God promised way back then. Well, guess what? I just believe what God promised way back when. And, and why, would you be, why would it be so incredible to believe that if God promised us a Messiah, that, that he was gonna come, that, 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 that can't be Jesus, and that God can't also raise him from the dead? He just shares the hope that everybody's longing for. The gospel's a message of hope. You know that. The gospel's a message of hope. I think we sometimes tend to emphasize the fact that we are sinful and dying. Yes, we are, but that just paves way for more hope. Ultimately, the message of Jesus is a message of a resurrected hope, a, a, a true rescuer called the Messiah, a proverbial knight in shining armor. So what Paul is doing is he's appealing to what they all long for. They long for hope. They're looking for, where's my hope? Where's my hope? Paul's like, your hope is already here. Just because the Old Testament prophets didn't see it in their time doesn't mean that it can't be right now, that God can't do this now. It sounds absurd, but this is the very reason that Paul was labeled, the very reason we're going to be labeled too is for our hope in God. What's hope? It's a confident assurance that Jesus is real and that God will do exactly what he says he will do in 
the course of human history. If there's ever a time for hope, just like the Jewish people need, if there's ever a time for hope in our world, it's now. If there's ever a time that people around us long for hope, that'd be today. Read the news lately? World War III, possibly? Korea, USA, what are people looking for? They're looking for hope. Read the headlines this weekend about Charlottesville, and it's astounding what's going on there. How can people hate each other so much? I don't get it. You know, ultimately, everyone's looking for its hope. Closer to our region, you know what people are looking for today? They're looking for hope. Look at our news. There's robberies and homelessness and struggles. Look around your neighborhoods. Life is hard. You know what people long for? They don't long for you just to, to, to push your own set of beliefs down their throat. You know what they're longing for? They're longing for hope. There's sickness and strife and depression and alcoholism and there's drugs and you know what I was looking for in our world? The exact same thing. Hope. They're looking for, for, for something beyond themselves that, that, that can give them, that can speak into the very hopelessness of their lives because deep down we all know that there's more going on than what we see. You know, our job is as believers, what our calling is is to help people see the hope is only found in God and his truth and his son. So we're on mission. Here's what we do. We proclaim that there is hope that is only in a God who is in control of this crazy world. We get to share with people that there is hope, that there is more to this life than you see, that there is something beyond this earth, that there is real love out there for them. This is hope that people long for, hope that the pain that we feel can be healed, and hope that the sin that is destroying us can ultimately be destroyed. We get to share the good news of hope in Jesus Christ. For reality is a persuasive speaking, earnest passion, emphasis on hope. So Paul goes into his testimony, and he preaches it, and then he gets to verse 12. And he's going through his testimony, verse 18, he gets to his testimony, and he tells him the story that you guys already know, that I was walking on the road to Damascus, I was like you, I was killing Christians, I was, I was out to get them. But then everything changed because I encountered Jesus And here's what Jesus told me. He told me in verse 16, rise and stand on your feet for I have appeared to you for a purpose. I'm appointing you as a servant and a witness to the things which you have seen me me, and to those in which I will appear to you. And here's his purpose, verse 18. Here's, here's, Here's our purpose in sharing our faith. It's not to win an argument, it's to win a soul. So many Christians just want to win the win the stupid argument. Instead of having a heart beyond the argument to the soul that so desperately needs a savior. Verse 18, here's the purpose of why we share our faith. It's because we're eager for salvation. I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they might receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by me in faith. Ultimately, why do we want to stand for Christ? Not so we can look at ourselves and be like, oh, look at us, we're Christians, we're all good, we got the answers. No, it's because we long to see other people know the abundant life in Jesus Christ. Then this whole dialogue, Festus says to Paul, he's like, are you trying to convince me or persuade me? Paul's like, absolutely I am, you and anyone else. Do we really believe that people are Blind 
spiritually blind to the things of God? Do we really believe that there's a dark souls out there who need the light of God in them? Do we really believe that, that people who don't know Jesus are under the power of Satan and not under the power of God? Do we really believe that our friends and our families and our relatives and the, well, those closest to us need to receive forgiveness of sins or else there's no hope for them in this life or the next? The goal of defending our faith and speaking persuasively for Jesus is simply this, is not to win the argument. Who cares if we're right in an argument? If we win the argument and lose the person in the midst of losing the argument, do we win? Do we win? We persuasively proclaim Jesus because we know, we know the reality that those without Christ miss God here and spend eternity with God, away from God in hell. And now we don't just know that, but we care. Hopefully you care that people around you are in imminent danger, but a breath away of eternal separation from God. It's amazing to me how we can know something and then we can disassociate care in our hearts. I'm the same as you. Again, this week as I'm studying, I'm, I'm looking at this, and I know these things. I preach them. I study them. This is my life. And yet somehow what makes me sick to my stomach is I can go throughout my days and my weeks going from A to B, giving less concern about the person surrounding me, my family and my friends and my neighbors and my coworkers, giving less concern about them than I do getting my front lawn cut. And all week I'm shaking my head like, what's wrong with me? Have I become so comfortable and so self-centered that all I care now is about me, that now I'm, I don't think I'm the only one. I share myself as an example because I don't want you to think you sit there by yourself. But I think if you're honest, you could, you could identify with me. Am I more worried about my kids being good in the restaurant than I am about the salvation of the Waiter or waitress? Am I more worried about my own little to-do list and getting my chores done that I forget that the people I cross paths with are given to me by God on purpose so I can be a light in a dark world? Don't forget that this whole book of Acts is about what? It's about a, a God who came to save us. It's about a God who, who, has, who, who, knows, who knows our eternal destinies and cares so much that he would give his son, his very own precious son, no one on this planet like his son, but he gave his very own precious son to die for not just anybody, but for you and I and for anyone else who would, who would hear and respond to the gospel of Jesus. Don't forget that you only stand right before God because somebody else had enough care, enough concern, enough burden to share with you the good news of the cross. I love the passion of Paul. I want the passion. I want you guys to have this passion. I want to get beyond even this whole idea that we come and we do church just because it's what we do and instead realize the God behind church and the mission that God has placed us on here in this world. You know, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, and someone dragged you here and brought you here, you know, we, we, we really don't care if you like our church, to be honest. 
I really don't care if you think I'm a good speaker or not. What we care about is that even this message that you're hearing today, that that there's a God out there who loves you, that there is hope for your life. And I pray that you'll hear this, that, that God today wants to open your eyes to this truth. And he wants to take you from darkness to light that you might, might go from a sinful heart to a heart that loves Jesus, that you might be, be re- redeemed from the power of Satan, that you might be under the control of the living God and that you might receive forgiveness of sins that you also might share in our hope of eternal life. And if you, if you don't know Christ and you're thinking this is all hogwash, just, just get that last like 30 seconds, please. If, if you're here today you don't know Jesus, just circle these verses in your Bible, verses 18, to, uh, verses 18 and 19. And go home and pray, God, if this is true, if all this stuff this guy is saying is true, like, please help me know, help me see. Help me see the reality that I need a Savior and there is nothing greater in this universe than knowing Jesus Christ. We share this because we want to see souls experience the same thing we experience. Festus, you trying to convince me, Paul? Paul's like, absolutely I am. Whether it's today or 30 years from now, I'm going to just keep going until I convince you. Why? Because he's so convinced that there's no other way to live life. This is where my joy comes from. This is where meaning comes from, my purpose. This is the life that God created us for. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? If you believe it, I know you'll share it because you can't keep your mouth closed. Four realities of persuasive speaking. I am praying that we will all have an earnest passion and an emphasis on hope and an eager for salvation. Here's how we live it out in a hostile world. Is it gonna be hard? Absolutely. Are we gonna get criticized? That's what's coming next. Expect pushback. Verses 21 to 27. Jews, they wanna kill him. They wanna end his life. Festus, he thinks he's crazy. He wants to commit him to a psych ward. Jews wanna kill him. Festus wants to commit him. Verse 24, as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, so Festus is not like, Paul, you're out of your mind, you nut. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. You're crazy. Paul says, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. I love how he throws the excellent in there, hey? But I'm speaking what is true and rational, for the king knows about these things, and to him I speak. Speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe in the prophets? I know you believe. Look at these easy. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Absolutely, whether short or long, I would, I would to God that, that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. At that, the king gets up, because he's clearly not crazy. Who crazy can speak so persuasively? takes his little sister with him. And he said to one another, this guy's doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. He could have been free, but he appealed to Caesar. This is his ticket to Rome, so it's all working out in God's plan, right? Just ticket to Rome anyways. But here's the point. I think we get all fired up and we get all like, yes, yes, I want to have earnest passion. I want to have emphasis on hope. I want to be eager for salvation. But forget this. To go out here and live this now, you're going to get pushed back. I'm not setting you up for a false reality. You're going to get pushed back. Remember, we live in a hostile world. If you don't know that, then you probably haven't talked about Jesus very often in this world. We live in a hostile world and, and maybe not yet death, but people are going to call us out, out of touch and brainwashed and narrow-minded and bigoted and intolerant and how can someone so smart be so dumb? sound harsh in today's terms and 
we don't like these things, but I think there's something deeper than what people call us or say about us that's going on here. It's, 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 our, it's, it's being obedient to Christ. It's fulfilling God's calling upon our lives. 2 Timothy 2. I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation in Christ. I endure everything for the sake of the elect. I ask you this this morning as we live this out. Why do we do all this? We do this because we recognize Jesus Christ is the ultimate. We do this because we've been saved, because we love Jesus. Not because we're trying to make a name for ourselves, not because we're trying to be the best evangelist in the church and have all the Christians put us on a pedestal. We do this because we love Jesus. And look what Christ has done for you. Look at all that Christ has done and is doing for you. What can he ask us to do for him that we are not willing to do? Especially endure a little bit of criticism. People have called me much worse than crazy, trust me. And they're a little bit right when it comes to the crazy thing. But what greater compliment than being crazy for Jesus? We do this because God's called us to, and and we know that that God has called us in this life to live in a way that's going to make an eternal difference with the one life he's given us to live. And realize this, that your life can make a difference in a hostile world. Your life can make a difference in a hostile world. Don't think this is theoretical. This is Paul. This is... Let me finish up with one story just to help you understand the full reality. You choose to live this today and God will use you to make a difference for sure. Back a long time ago, there was a fourth century monk named Telemachus and he did his little thing in the, in the mountains, you know, tending the garden and spending time in solitude praying and, and, and caring for the veggies for the monastery and, and one day God put upon his heart uh, a true story documented and, and probably all the details are, are exactly accurate but... Uh, God put on his heart to go to, to the main city in, in Rome. And so he didn't know why he was going, but he left his little monastery. never been out of there before. And he, he traveled to Rome only to get there at time of festive, a, fest, a time of a festival. So he was kind of, kind of standing back like, whoa, like, like completely different than a monastery. And he didn't know what to do. So he just followed the crowds. And he ended up following the crowds right into a Roman Colosseum. And uh, in that Roman, Roman Colosseum was a gladiator fight to the death. And of course, being in a monastery, he never considered the fact that people could fight to the death. It's sort of like UFC today when you think about it. We're going back to that thing. And so he's up in the top, kind of like jumping over, trying to see what's going on. When he realized that there was people like, for sport, were dying, he was mortified. And his little voice is like, stop, stop. And of course, no one's paying attention. They're all cheering for like, yeah, kill him, kill him. And and finally, he was so overcome with emotion of watching this this gladiator, the spear about to go through this gladiator. He's going to lose his life for sport that he he ran, he jumped, somehow got down and got onto the concourse. And he was down there. He he got in between the spear and this little monk, you know, between the spear and this gladiator. And he's like, stop in the name of God. Stop this horrendousness. Stop this horrendousness. The crowd kind of stopped. The gladiator was going to kill his opponent, kind of looked up and laughed, like, who is this little guy? And, and he's pleading for the, in the name of God, like, stop. And, and the crowd kind of didn't know what to do with it. And all of a sudden, they could kind of laugh, and some of them were laughing. He's kind of made a little joke of it. And they started yelling, kill him, kill him, kill him. And because we we're all given to the popularity of the crowd, right, the gladiator took his spear and put it right through Telemachus. And this little monk died as he's trying to defend human rights and the life of another. And apparently, as some tell the story, at the moment of death, the cheering kind of stopped and everyone was sort of like, what just happened? And the stadium fell deathly silent. And one by one, people got up and left the Roman Colosseum. And that little 
solitary, innocent little life was responsible for, in the coming days, the abolishment of fight to the death in the Roman culture. Because one guy was willing to take God's call seriously to contend for what mattered most. Are we willing to take God's call seriously to contend for the souls of those around us that are lost and dying? Trusting is going to use us to make a difference in this world. How do you live life in a, for Christ in a hostile world? You have deep convictions that there is one God, one Lord, one Savior, Jesus Christ. And you ask God to give you the inner fortitude to contend for the faith with all that you've got knowing that there is eternal ramifications, eternal rewards at stake for our lives and all those around us. This is what it means to be on mission. Paul is just showing us what it means for us to be on mission. Let's live it out. Let me pray. God, first glance at this chapter, we look at this and like, man, I can't be Paul. I'm not Paul. I can't be Paul. Yet, God, we recognize that you've called us to the same scenario. You've you've put us in this world, which is so opposed to you, to be lights in the darkness. God, I simply pray this. Help us not just hear these words, but, but help us be convinced in our hearts that you are God and you are alive. And Lord, help us share this message this coming week with all the passion, with all the urgency, with a heart for people, with a love for Jesus Christ. Help us to not waste our lives on ourselves and the useless things of this world. But instead, oh God, would you cause us to be a people who make an eternal difference? Even if it's one life, even if it's one life, may you use us to help people go from darkness to light, from death to life. Would you give us the joy, Lord, of allowing our lives to be fruitful in the lives of others for the kingdom of God? Would you help our church be on this page? Would you help us, Lord? Would you use us? Would you move us for your glory alone? Amen.